recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 21st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Well, I wrote 25 pages for Galatians chapter 3 and did it over two weeks. Here we will only have 15 pages for Galatians chapter 4. I pray that this relative brevity does not disappoint anyone. Before we begin, and I hope that they hear this, there was a family which lives in Tennessee and which I gather listens to our programs, whom we really do not know, but who dropped us a nice note several weeks ago saying that they were vacationing in our area this month and asked if we would see them. Of course, we would be happy to see them, but there was no contact information in the note which they wrote to us. So within a day or two, Melissa had written them a short note in return with my cell phone number. And if they hear this, we wish that they would text or call because we hope that we don't miss them. It would be unfortunate for a lack of communications. This is the fifth installment of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. It's subtitled, Sons of the Promise. With this, we will complete Galatians chapter 4 this evening, Yahweh willing. Perhaps after his epistle to the Romans, Paul's epistle to the Galatians is a paramount exhibition of the practical conception of covenant theology. But this is only apparent when the individual sentences of this epistle are read and interpreted in their own context rather than being isolated and their interpretations perverted as the commentators of the denominational sects are wont to do. In Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul addressed the fallacy that one's righteousness could be obtained through the works of the law by clinging to ordinances which prescribed ceremonies and rituals, which certainly is contrary to Scripture, since Scripture itself professes that no living man can be justified in the sight of Yahweh God. For all men are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. From Romans chapter 9, it is evident that there were Edomites in Judea who claimed to be of Israel and who were seeking their righteousness by the law. But there were also many Israelites remaining in Judea who were persuaded by them. And we can tell that very fact from Acts chapter 21. And it is these Judaizers whom Paul is addressing here in the bigger picture which he began to explain in those opening chapters of Galatians. Then, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explained that in spite of the law, righteousness is inferred by God through the promises to Abraham but that those promises to Abraham were not passed on to all of Abraham's descendants. Rather, they were passed on only to those which had been anointed by God, which are the children of Israel. The children of Jacob Israel are the anointed seed out of all of Abraham's seeds. 
or the various races which would claim descent from Abraham. And therefore, the children of Israel are the exclusive heirs of the covenant in spite of whether the Edomites or the Ishmaelites would keep the law. However, just because, as we read this epistle, the chapter number now changes. That does not mean that the subject of Paul's discourse is changing. And in this chapter, it becomes absolutely manifest that Paul has indeed been teaching what we may call covenant theology, which is the knowledge that the promises to Abraham, which in the new covenant are fulfilled in Christ, are fulfilled along the same lines as the promises to Abraham fulfilled in kingdom Israel under the old covenant. They are promises made to Abraham concerning his seed or offspring, and they are eternal. Each of these covenants represents the fulfillment by Yahweh God of the promises to Abraham in their respective ages. The promises of God do not change and were upheld in spite of the fact that the children of Israel had failed to keep the Levitical covenant, which, as we learn from Paul here, was supplementary to the promises to Abraham. As Paul had explained, and as we had seen in the Psalms and in the records of the promises themselves while discussing Galatians chapter 3, the promises to Abraham cannot fail, and they are without condition. Further, as Paul has said in Romans chapter 4, the promise to Abraham is assured to all of the offspring which are accounted through Jacob Israel, because the offspring are accounted according to the promise, as Paul had said in that chapter, thus your offspring will be. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul had told his readers, but before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. So the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor, for you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Christ Yahshua. So the heirs, according to the promise, as it is wholly evident in the book of Genesis, are those who would later receive the law, which are the children of Israel. Then Paul concluded that chapter by saying in verse 29, But if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to promise where we exhibited the fact that this is a conditional sentence of the type which expresses a factual implication, and that sentences of such a type also appear at Matthew 12.28 and Hebrews 12.8, where it is clearly elucidated that if one condition in the conditional sentence is correct, the other one is correct as a factual implication of the first. The equation must work both ways. If both statements don't stand alone as true, there is no factual implication. 
Here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul of Tarsus continues to expound upon that very same thing, reinforcing what he had already said in Galatians chapter 3 by explaining that those whom Christ had come to redeem are those same offspring of Abraham who at one time had been under the law, something which can only apply to the dispersions of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And he says in verse 1, Now I say, for as long a time as the heir is an infant, he differs not at all from a bondman, being master of all, but he is subject to guardians and stewards until a time appointed by the father. In other words, if the heir is master of all, for as long as time as he is an infant, he still has to remain subject to guardians and stewards. Paul is making an analogy which describes Yahweh God's relationship with the children of Israel. Under the old covenant, the heir, which is the children of Israel collectively, was an infant and was therefore given a law and its ordinances and its rituals as his guardian. They were to learn from that guardian in spite of the fact that they ultimately rebelled from it. The punishment for rebellion is also a part of the lesson, as it says in Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And the analogy continues. Just as we also, when we were infants, we were held subject under the elements of the society. The society is a reference to the Abrahamic society, as Abraham was promised that his seed would inherit the old Adamic world. And by the time of Christ, the seed of Abraham certainly did inherit that world. By this time, the predominant tribes of the Adamic Oikumene were all descended primarily from the ancient children of Israel, the Romans, the Dorians, the Phoenicians of the West, and the Scythians, or Germanic Galatahi, as they were called by the Greeks later in history. This is in spite of the fact that within the empires of the Romans and the Parthians, the internationalist merchant class of Mystery Babylon was influencing the world powers behind the scenes, as they had done until very recently. Whereas now, for these past 100 years or so, to a great extent, they are out of the shadows and in the forefront of world politics. Satan released from the pit. The elements of that old Abrahamic society, which the children of Israel were subject to, were the ordinances and rituals of the law, which were framed within the society in which the children of Israel had been bound. Once again, this is in spite of the fact that for the most part they had abandoned their God in favor of the Canaanite paganism which they had brought with them to Europe. For that reason, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explains that 
Israel according to the flesh were the nations of the society that were sacrificing to pagan devils rather than to Yahweh their God. And he says in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4, And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. The reason why Christ was born inside of the remnant of Israelites in Judea. The word translated as redeem, both here and in the King James Version, is ex agarazo, Strong's number 1805. And it can mean simply to buy from or to buy up, but it had a stronger meaning than that. According to the large ninth edition, of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon, the noun form of the word ex agarasia means ransom, or even because it means ransom, it means redemption. This is not the same word for redeem frequently found in the Septuagint, which is Lutro, Strong's number 3084, although Paul also uses that word in this same context in Titus 2.14, as does Peter, who among others is addressing these same Galatians in 1 Peter 1.18. So this word is a synonym to the word from the Septuagint, which is generally to redeem. The Greek word, apolambano here, Strong's number 618, is to recover while in the King James Version, it is translated merely as receive. If Paul only wanted to say receive, the prefix is unnecessary. The simple word lambano alone would have been more than sufficient. Apolambano has a stronger meaning, for which Liddell and Scott have to take or receive from another, to receive what is one's due, to take back, to get back, regain, or recover. And even the King James Version renders this same word, apolambano, as receive again in Luke 6.34. Paul uses the word in the sense of to receive what is one's due in Romans 1.27 and Colossians 3.24. We have also translated the same word as recover at Luke 15.27. And in a the context there, where the King James Version has only to receive, it can mean nothing but recover. It's referring to the prodigal son. When a man recovers or gets back a son who is lost. And this is... um. An example of translating according to worldview. You translate according to your estimation of what is being said. If you understand the scriptural narrative, if you understand that the children of Israel were put off 
so that they could later be, as it is promised in the prophets, reconciled to Yahweh, then you can translate these words properly. If you don't understand the scriptural narrative, when you go to translate the New Testament, your translation will use the, the looser, less meaningful definitions of these words. The Greek word huiothesia, adoption, here in verse 5 in the King James Version, of course. Huiothesia means to place a son. By itself, it describes only the placement of a son. And it does not describe the actual act of adoption. Although adoption is one reason for which a son may be placed. In the act of adoption, where someone who is not a natural son, but who is being made into a son according to the laws of man, because the laws of God wouldn't recognize this, the act itself was described in ancient Greek with the word ispoiesis, which is the making of one thing into another. And the word ispoiesis does not ever appear in this context in Scripture. So someone would come along who saw a son who was placed for adoption, where the word huiothesia is appropriate. And then the word ispoiesis would describe the act of adoption itself. But that is not the context in which the word huiothesia is ever used in the Bible. Presenting Romans chapter 8 here in June of 2014, where the same word, Huiothesia, first appears in Paul's epistles at Romans 8.15, we describe the meanings of these words at length using specific examples from classical Greek writers, including Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch. The Greek word ispoiesis describes the act of adoption where Huiothesia describes the placing of a son, for which adoption may be one reason. But another reason may be the placing of a son into his rightful place into the household, or into his place in the inheritance of the household, placing a son into his position where he is mentioned in the will. The children of Israel, we are told, have reconciliation in Christ. So returning to God through Christ, they are being restored to their proper place in his household. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the society unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, meaning that he could only be speaking about the children of Israel, and has committed unto us the word of that reconciliation. He also said in Hebrews chapter 2, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, 
referring to the rest of the children of Israel, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. This is how the word huiothesia is used in the Bible for the placing of sons back into the household of God. In the same manner, according to the word of God, Yahweh God, in the person of Yahshua Christ, is the Redeemer only for the children of Israel. As he says in Isaiah chapter 49, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because Yahweh is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Therefore, when that Redeemer appeared, he himself had said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The denominational sects refuse to believe these things, so they pervert the many plain statements in Scripture, and especially in these epistles of Paul. Here there is further substantiation that Paul is addressing lost Israelites, whom he had, he had been addressing throughout this epistle. And he is addressing them exclusively, since only the Israelites had ever been subject to the Mosaic law. From Psalm 147, he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. When the heirs were infants, they were bound under the Mosaic law, as Paul also asserted in Galatians chapter 3 where he had told them, but before the faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Furthermore, only the Israelites could possibly recover the position of sons which they had under the Levitical covenant. And Yahweh said to Israel in Isaiah chapter 49, for I will contend with him that contends with thee, speaking to the children of Israel, and I will save thy children. Only the Israelites could be redeemed, as Yahweh had promised them so often, such as in Isaiah chapter 52, where he says, For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. These statements made to the Galatians would be utter nonsense unless Paul knew that he was speaking to lost Israelites, meaning those of the Assyrian deportations and times earlier. Those who at one time had the position of sons in the Levitical kingdoms of Judah and Israel and had lost their position as sons in that kingdom when they were put out of the sight of Yahweh, their God, for their disobedience. 
in the word of God given to his prophets, that putting out was accompanied with promises of reconciliation, so that the initial promises to Abraham would never fail. We're not saved. The children of Israel aren't saved for the children of Israel. They're saved for the promises that God had made to the fathers. On account of the fathers. So Paul says in verse 6, and because you are sons, not because you might be sons if you believe Jesus, and because you are sons, Yahweh has dispatched the spirit of his son into our hearts. The majority text has your hearts. Crying, Father, Father. And the phrase, Abba, Father, appears three times in Scripture. Here and in Romans 8.15, which we just discussed. And in Mark 14.36, we have opted to translate the meaning of both words. Abba is the Hebrew word for Father. Speaking of the punishment of the children of Israel, in Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet attributes these words to the people of the nation. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. Thou needest him that rejoices and works his righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calls upon thy name, that stirs up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, thou art our Father, Abba Father. We are the clay, and thou art our potter, and we all, meaning all of Israel, are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Yahweh, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see we beseech thee, we are all thy people. In other words, the children of Israel are all of his people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Yahweh? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? In Acts chapter 14, Paul had told the Lycaonians of Iconium, who were not descended from the ancient Israelites, but who were evidently of the stock of the Thracians, that God, in times past, suffered 
all nations to walk their own ways. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul told the Athenians, who were Ionians by race, that God has made of all things, of all, I'm sorry, that God has made of one, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, or land, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek Yahweh, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Yet the Thracians, from Tiras in Genesis chapter 10, and the Ionians from Javan. The Thracians and Ionians alike are Japethites, descended from those Genesis 10 nations of the children of Noah. And their land was divided by God, and the bounds of their habitations ordained in the account given in Genesis chapter 11, and referred to again in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, which Paul paraphrased here. This is the Adamic oikumene, the original white world, which the seed of Abraham was to inherit, and which indeed happened by the time of Christ. The seed of Abraham did inherit the entire Adamic world by the time of Christ. So Paul told the Romans in chapter 4 of his epistle to them, speaking of Abraham, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world, quoting the King James, was not to Abraham or to his seed, through law, but through the righteousness of faith, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be where Paul had also assured his readers that to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. To the end. There's no changing it. But Paul had also told the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, who were not Israelites, that certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That the Athenians, although they were not Israelites, are of the children of God, is indeed true. Since we read in Luke 3.38 that Adam was the son of God, all of Adam's children, which are the white nations of the ancient world, all of those nations who can trace their origins back exclusively to the nations of Genesis chapter 10 are also the sons of God. If you're a Mandingo, there's no room for you in Genesis chapter 10. If you're a Chinaman, there's no room for you in Genesis chapter 10. This is a part of the larger picture of Scripture which begins in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 22, where we have the first promise of eternal life found in Scripture, that if the man put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
But Paul never spoke to the Lycaonians or to the Athenians concerning Christ. Redemption, reconciliation, or the promises to Abraham and his seed because they were not of that seed. In the Old Testament, as we have seen Paul attest, all of the other Adamic nations were allowed to go off into the larger world, engaging in satanic paganism and eventually becoming obliterated by mixing with or being overrun by the non-white races. So the Word of God says to the children of Israel in chapter 43 of Isaiah, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. The original Egyptians, the Cushite Ethiopians, and the Sabians were also all at one time white nations. They were also all of the original Genesis 10 white Adamic nations descended from Adam through Ham. But they were all overrun by the enemies of God and they were all being destroyed in that manner when the prophet had spoken. Then, in that same chapter of Isaiah, where it had spoken of the destruction of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba, we read in the verses which immediately follow, where it is still speaking only of the children of Israel, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. And I will say to the north, Give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons, now the Egyptians and Ethiopians and Sabians, they were children of Adam, but they certainly weren't included here. They were given up to his enemies on behalf of the children of Israel. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name. That includes only the children of Israel. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Meaning Yahweh indeed has to be 
Yahshua Christ. The references to the blind and the deaf are also exclusive references to the children of Israel. As it says earlier in Isaiah chapter 42, speaking of those same children of Israel, Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind? as he is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant. In the Old Testament, Yahweh God only claimed the children of Israel as his children because he chose them out of all of the Adamic Genesis 10 nations for which to execute his will in the world. So we see in Deuteronomy chapter 14, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. The children of Israel are described as the children of God many times from that point in Scripture. Right up to John chapter 11, where it says that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together the blind, the deaf, the children of Israel that he spoke to in that same manner earlier in Isaiah, that he should gather together the children of God, which are scattered abroad. Everywhere in the prophets where this promise of God gathering his children is made, it is speaking exclusively of the children of Israel. As it says in Jeremiah chapter 50 from verse 4, In those days, and in that time, saith Yahweh, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to Yahweh in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Then, speaking to these Galatians, who were once under the law, who were one of those lost sheep people Jeremiah was talking about, so you are no longer a bondman, but a son. And if a son, than an heir through Yahweh. Paul said to these Galatians in verse 6 that because you are sons, that Yahweh has dispatched his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts. Here Paul says to the Galatians that you are no longer a bondman, but a son. And if a son, then and heir through Yahweh. Therefore, it is absolutely evident that one must first be a son or daughter of Yahweh God, a designation which in the entire Old Testament God had only given to the children of Israel. And then, if one is a son, one receives the Spirit of Christ. And 
if one was in bondage to the law, which again pertains only to the children of Israel, then one is a son. But one is no longer in bondage to the law. Where Paul is referring to the performance of the rituals and ceremonial ordinances. That being so, then if one is a son, then one is an heir to the promises of Abraham which is the inheritance of which Paul is speaking. One does not become a son merely by believing in Jesus. As Paul says here, if one is of those people who were at one time bound under the law, which refers to the dispersed children of Israel, then in Christ, one is no longer a bondman, but a son. Therefore, being one of the children of Israel, one is an heir. Each condition clearly replies upon the, relies upon the preceding condition. If condition A is not true, then condition B does not apply to you. Here in Galatians 4.7, we have another type of conditional sentence which we have encountered in Galatians 3.29, which is a conditional sentence that expresses a factual implication. In these cases, both the if part and the then part, which are the protasis and the apodosis, must be true statements. If one is an heir, then one must be a son, meaning that one must be of the anointed seed of Abraham, as Paul had explained in Galatians chapter 3. If one is a son, then in turn, one must be an heir. One of the seed to whom the promise is certain as Paul had also explained in Romans chapter 4, that the promise is certain to all the seed, and that the seed are accounted according to the promise. The seed comes from Abraham's loins. It is not the other way around the Roman Catholic Church and all the denominations which have followed it all claim to be heirs and sons and their claims are based on the false pretenses of church membership and obeisance to their particular church organizations but the scripture teaches that the children of Israel can return to their position as sons if they return to Yahweh their God through Christ and make their obeisance to him. The church comes out of Israel. Israel does not come out of the church. Rather, Israel comes from Abraham's loins, according to the promises of God, to which Paul refers here in Galatians chapter 3, and also in Romans chapter 4. The scripture 
does not say that many nations could become Abraham's seed. Rather, the scripture says that Abraham's seed would indeed become many nations, and that those of Abraham's seed which came through Jacob Israel are those which are chosen of God. One must first be a son of Jacob, the only people who were in bondage to the rituals of the law. And then being freed from those rituals in Christ, one may assume one's preordained position as a child of God and an heir to the covenant. Because only the children of Israel are the sons of the promise to Abraham. Whether we want to read 1 John chapter 11, I'm sorry, John 1 verses 11 through 12. Whether we want to read John 1 verses 11 and 12 in the corrupt manner, such as where the King James Version understands it to say that he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, or whether we want to read it in the context of Scripture by which the Greek of the passage should be read. He came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain. Whichever way we want to read this is immaterial. Although we prefer the latter, it does not really matter which way we may read it, because in any case, John refers only to those who belonged to Christ even before they received Christ. He came to his own, not to those who were not his in the first place, as Christ himself told those who rejected him, but you believe not because you are not my sheep as I said unto you. And if they weren't his sheep, therefore he never came for them. He came for his own. But to understand who his and those others were, one must understand the history of Judea leading up to that time, a history which the denominational sects all ignore. It is that which Paul relates to us in Romans chapter 9 and in Galatians chapter 3. Likewise, Paul is not teaching that the children of Israel can or should become the children of God. Neither is Paul teaching that anyone else can somehow become children of God. The children of Israel being the children of Adam, they are already children of Yahweh their God. Luke 3.38. And being Israelites, who were at one time under the law, and who are of the seed of Abraham to Jacob, they are indeed children of God according to the word of God, which they were explicitly told in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 14.1, in Isaiah 45.11, as well as later in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, or in Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 13. 
In Romans chapter 8, Paul had said, Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Which means to accept Christ and be obedient to his law and love your brethren and understand his commandments. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. The same distinction Paul makes here in a different way. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. Then we may read in Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. His brethren are only those who are already of the seed of Abraham. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people where there is no reconciliation, it don't matter if you believe in Jesus. You're not being reconciled. Where we fear not death, only then can we do what is right in the eyes of God. <laughs> the language and context of the passages. In Galatians 4.6 and Romans 8.15, as well as this citation from Hebrews chapter 2, are all similar because in each case, Paul is writing to people who had descended from the ancient Israelites of the Old Testament. And it is to them alone for whom these promises were made. Because they are among the nations sprung from the loins of Abraham through Jacob Israel. The scripture does not allow that anyone can become Abraham's seed. And the scripture does not allow that anyone can become a child of God simply because they profess a belief in some vaguely defined Jesus. The other races are the enemies of God, which is proven in scripture where Yahweh said that he had given up Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba for the sake of the children of Israel. Who the hell did he give them to? These nations, meaning the people, not the geographical areas, are therefore already consumed by his enemies from before the time of Christ. It's already done. These fell victim to the flood from the mouth of the serpent, which now persecutes the children of Israel, as it foretells in Revelation chapter 12. None of these others shall ever be Christians in the eyes of God. 
as Paul said in these past few verses of Galatians, one receives the Spirit of God because one is already a son. And if one is already a son of God, then one is already an heir. But the sons, and therefore the heirs, are reckoned according to the promise, as Paul had already explained in Romans chapter 4 and 9 and here in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore, only the genetic children of Israel can be heirs or sons or Christians as the children of Israel are portrayed as saying in Isaiah chapter 63, the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while, meaning the kingdom and the temple and all of the rights and privileges of the children of God in that kingdom. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. And the same thing's happening today. As it says in Luke chapter 1, Christ came to save Israel from those adversaries, not to make them into Christians with Israel. These are the basic teachings of Scripture. This is all milk. But they have never been taught because for 300 years, this basic biblical doctrine was persecuted out of existence by the Jews and by the Romans at the instigation of the Jews until the only Christian teachers who remained we're teaching a watered-down, universal form of Christianity, which the universalist pagan Romans finally found to be tolerable, and for that reason, the Jews could no longer resist. But Paul's original commission, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9, was this, according to the words of Christ, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And then, Paul himself again professes the essence of this same commission in Acts chapter 26, where he spoke before Herod Agrippa II, and he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers. This is the end of Acts. This is the culmination of all Paul's study of Scripture and all Paul's teaching. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Tribes come from loins. Tribes don't come from anywhere else but loins. Then in Acts chapter 28, we see the same profession, once again, where Paul exclaims that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. We know further that it is this doctrine which was persecuted because we have the words of Paul, as they are recorded 
in Acts chapter 22, where speaking of Christ, he attested that he said to me, go, because I shall send you off to distant nations, referring to the lost sheep of the nations of Israel of his original commission. And the Jews responded immediately and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Here Paul commences by explaining the estrangement of Israel. But while at that time, not knowing Yahweh, you had been enslaved to those who are not gods by nature. The ancient Israelites were cast off for following after the gods of Canaan. In their apostasy, they had forgotten their God, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 2, where the word of Yahweh addresses the children of Israel. Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. But thou said, there is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, to a piece of wood, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods. O Judah, wherefore will you plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith Yahweh. In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see ye the word of Yahweh. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore, say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So Paul says here, but while at that time, not knowing Yahweh, you had been enslaved to those who are not gods by nature. Paul is explaining Jeremiah chapter 2, or at least he's summarizing the history of the children of Israel. As a result of their apostasy, they were cast off from the presence of their God. Yet they had a promise of mercy and reconciliation, as we may read later in Jeremiah chapter 33, perhaps. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, has he even cast them off? Thus they have despised my people, that they should be no more a nation before him. Thus saith Yahweh, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant. 
so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. The promises of God can't fail unless the entire structure of existence fails. The ordinances of heaven and earth. Therefore, Paul had said in Colossians chapter 1, where he was also speaking to anciently dispersed Israelites, and you at one time, being alienated and odious in thought by wicked deeds, yet now he has reconciled with the body of his flesh through that death to present you holy and blameless and void of offense before him, the body of his flesh. Speaking of that reconciliation, Paul then says in verse 9, And now, knowing Yahweh, because they received the gospel of Christ, and still more, being known by Yahweh, because they are a portion of punished Israel, we read about in Amos chapter 3. How do you again turn back to the weaknesses and poor elements of knowledge to which, from above, you again desire to be enslaved? Paul had said in verse 3 of this chapter, Just as we also, when we were infants, we were held subject under the elements of the society. Here the word for elements is that same Greek word, stoikion, Strong's number 4747. This word for elements may have been interpreted as rudiments, in that manner referring to a rudimentary knowledge of the law. Paul is, of course, still addressing the Judaizers and referring to the rituals and ceremonial ordinances of the law to which at least some of the Galatians were evidently succumbing. These are what Paul calls here poor elements of knowledge because the children of Israel in the New Covenant were being offered a better way in Christ. As Paul had explained here, the law was only a schoolmaster to bring the children of Israel to Christ. As he later wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 8 of that epistle, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Likewise, he said here in Galatians 3.21, if there had been a law given which could have given a life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. The Greek word anothen, Strong's number 509, is from above here in the Christogenian New Testament. This word was ignored by the translators of the King James Version. It does not mean again. The two occurrences of the word again in the English of this verse, Galatians 4.9, are from the Greek word palin, which is rendered by its literal meaning. I am tempted to write here, to which you who are from above again desire. 
to be enslaved. Adding the words who are, since the verb aimi is sometimes implied, where it is not actually written in Greek. Nearly every Bible translation ignores the word anothen here in its translation of this passage. Most have each occurrence of Pelin as again, and only a couple of versions even recognize the presence of the word anothen. Although where they recognize it, they imagine the word to also mean again. And therefore, they translate the two words as, again, anew, in their attempts to render both anothen and that instance of the word painting. We would rather believe that Paul is making a greater distinction. Being subject to those elements of the law in rituals, Paul said in verse 4 that Christians were subject when they were under the law, they were subject under the elements of the society. But being redeemed, Christians would recover the position of sons and receive the spirit of Yahweh their God, as he then explained in verses 5 and 6. Then later in this chapter, in reference to the same thing, he refers to the Jerusalem, which is above standing in opposition to the idea of bondage under the rituals. Therefore, taking one's rightful place in the household of God, the Christian lives in the spirit of God as being born from above, which Paul refers to later in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And to which Paul later makes a reference to in this chapter, where he speaks of freedom from the rituals of the law, and refers to the Jerusalem which is above, which is free, which is the mother of us all. Christians, being Adamic Israelite children of God, are indeed born from above. And taking the position of sons in Christ, they live as if they are born from above, not participating in the sins of the world for which the rituals of the law had sought propitiation, as Paul shall explain here in Galatians chapter 5. Paul taught this same thing in Romans chapter 8, where he said, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Being a debtor, you are abundant. But if you live through the Spirit, you mortify the deeds of the body. Ye shall live. Therefore, returning to the idea of justification by the works of the law, Christian Israelites abandon their position as sons of Yahweh, born from above, and return to place themselves under the poor elements of the world. In conclusion, it is worldly, even fleshly, to rely on rituals and ceremonies for one's sense of righteousness. Paul continues, you observe days and months and times 
and cycles. I fear for you, whether or not I have toiled for you without purpose. Now that Greek phrase, rendered times and cycles, may have been rendered seasons and years. There are other words which more commonly mean seasons or years. Perhaps the 3rd century papyrus, P46, one of the Chester Beatty papyri, gives us some insight, whether it is correct or not, whether the reading is correct or not, into the meaning of verse 10 where it has, they are watching days and months and times and cycles in reference to the Judaizers, ostensibly. In any case... Paul's fear for the Galatians includes their having taken to calendar-keeping any observation of days and months, or perhaps moons. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul had written, Therefore no one must judge you in food and in drink, or in respect of feast or new moon or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things, whereas the body is of the anointed. The Sabbath wasn't. The Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. Man was not made for the benefit of the Sabbath. In the context of this epistle, by saying this here, Paul must be referring to feasts and new moons which had been ordained in the law. That these appointed days were kept according to the law is evident, for instance, in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, in words attributed to Solomon, where it says, Behold, I built a house to the name of Yahweh my God, to dedicate it to him, and to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings, morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons and on the solemn feasts of Yahweh our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. Seeking ones, and, and one day soon we'll discuss the meaning of forever pertaining to the law. Seeking one's justification by keeping feasts and appointed days is therefore no different than performing the other works of the law. While Paul had advised the Corinthians to keep the Passover in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that was ostensibly for the purpose of fellowship, but not for the purpose of justification. There's a huge difference. Why you do something. So here Paul expresses his concern for the Galatians, that they are slipping back into the elements of the society. Because keeping rituals and ceremonies, they are seeking to be justified by the society. And Paul says at verse 12, You be as I am, and as much as I am also like you, brethren, I ask this of you brethren, calling them brethren and saying, I am like you, they must be brethren according to the flesh, which is the manner in which Paul counts his brethren. I ask this of you, you have wronged me in nothing. Paul asks the Galatians to mimic 
his own walk in the faith, and attests that he would not be offended for what they have done thus far, following the Judaizers. Now you know that in sickness of the flesh, I had announced the good message to you earlier, and of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe. One papyrus, the 3rd century papyrus, P46, wants those words, or loathe. The nature of Paul's trial in the flesh is revealed below in verse 15, and later in a salutation of this epistle. If it is the alternate reading, which is legitimate, where... The Codices Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, the Vaticanus and the Bezae, all have the beginning of verse 14 to read, and of your trial in my flesh you did not despise or loathe. If that reading is legitimate, then Paul indicates that it was the Galatians who were being tested by his infirmity as to whether or not they would accept him with his poor eyesight or think little of him instead. Now, that's a possible reading because in the Greco-Roman world, much importance was customarily given to physical beauty and to bodily perfection. But Paul then commends them by saying, at the end of verse 14. But as a messenger of Yahweh, you accepted me, like Yahshua Christ. Now Paul has his critics to this statement. And by criticizing him, they demonstrate that they do not understand the scripture. As Paul had instructed his apostles in Matthew chapter 10, for that same thing, I'm sorry, as Christ had instructed his apostles in Matthew chapter 10. For that same thing, Paul is commending the Galatians here, where Christ had said, He that receives you receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. And that is what Paul is referring to here at the end of Galatians 4.14. And he asks, Then what is your blessing? Of course, for this blessing, they would be rewarded in heaven and not here on earth. Then what is your blessing? I testify to you that, if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. So here, and it's amazing how many um, ridiculously shallow Judeo-Christian interpreters don't read this far, and they want to make up their own story about Paul's trial in the flesh. Here, Paul's trial in the flesh is proven to be his poor eyesight, which we see happen in the events in Acts chapter 9. And Paul testifies to the kindness of these Galatians, who, when he had previously visited them, 
would have given him their own eyes as a replacement for his. Paul must be referring to his sojourn among the Galatians, which is recorded only briefly in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Later, at the end of this epistle in Galatians 6.11, where it is evident that he wrote the salutation himself, Paul said, Do you see in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? The, the necessity of writing in large letters would be an effect of having poor eyesight. And Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, have I become your enemy, speaking truth to you? And as it says in Proverbs chapter 12, He that speaks truth shows forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. Men should love those who speak the truth to them, even if that truth is discomforting. However, too many men are comfortable in D.C. From the same chapter of Proverbs, the lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Your lie will not endure. Not rightly do they envy you, verse 17. Rather, they desire to exclude you in order that you would envy them. As David prayed in the Psalms, Deliver my soul, O Yahweh, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. The Judaizers wished to exclude the Galatians, meaning that by enticing them to follow the rituals and the ceremonial ordinances of the law, the Galatians would be excluded from the liberty which Christians have in Christ that liberty which was referred to as the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, and which was referred to by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he warns and he says, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty, meaning their liberty from the rituals and ceremonial ordinances of the law, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Likewise, in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul had explained, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in the same people Peter was talking about in 2 Peter chapter 2, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage. Here Paul continues to address these problems with the Judaizers, which he has been addressing throughout this epistle, although he took a necessary diversion to address the rituals of the law as opposed to the nature of the promises to Abraham. The Apostle Peter was once again speaking of these same Judaizers, whom he calls false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he is writing to the same Christian assemblies of Anatolia that had originally been founded by Paul. And he says, 
These, those false teachers, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. This meeting of what Paul says in chapter 2 of Galatians in verse 4, and what we see here in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verses 17 through 19, is important. Generally, men who rely on the works of the law or on rituals and ceremonial ordinances for their assurance of salvation end up envying, as Paul says here, end up envying those who dispense those rituals and become subject to them. This is the key ingredient, psychologically, to the control which the professional priesthoods have over their own congregations. If you believe that you have salvation at the hands of a man because that man helped you perform some ritual, your allegiance will be to that particular man or to what he represents. In this manner, the blind lead the blind, and both fall into a ditch. Rather, one's full allegiance should only be to Yahshua Christ, in whom is the only true salvation, and in whom rituals and ceremonies are no longer necessary for justification. You think so-and-so baptized you. You owe so-and-so something. You are obligated to that person. Men who wish to baptize you wish to rule over you. Men who insist that you be baptized, they want to be your masters. <laughs> Verse 18. But it is right always to envy and good, and not only at my presence with you. From Psalm 34, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. As Paul told the Colossians, that you might walk worthy of Yahweh unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Galatians 4.19 My little children, whom I travail once more, until the anointed have taken shape among you. Don't tell me Christ is taking shape among the Galatians. The anointed, the body of Christ, are taking shape among the Christian, the Christians of the world. My little children, whom I travail once more, until the anointed have taken shape among you, I have desired to be present with you even now, 
and to change my tone, apparently maybe to become more stern, because I am perplexed with you. Christ has already descended to the heavens, and he is not taking shape among the children of Israel. Rather, it is the body of Christ, which is the anointed collectively, that is taking shape among the children of Israel in their dispersions as the gospel spreads throughout the Abrahamic oikumene, the former Adamic oikumene. Christ had warned us not to use titles such as father or rabbi because those titles are so often used in a manner which confers undue authority to their bearers. However, that does not preclude men from having affection for those whom they teach. And Paul, like the Apostle John, had also expressed in all three of his epistles. Paul saw those to whom he had taught the gospel as his own children. In Greek, one common word for a teacher is from the same root as the word for child. That word is pahedagogus, from which we have the English word pedagogue. The same word found in Galatians 3.24 and 3.25 as schoolmaster. A pahedagogus is literally a leader of children, since a pahis is a child. Paul also used the allusion to his students as his children in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where he had written, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, meaning that Paul brought them the gospel first. We may read from Isaiah chapter 38, The living, the living, he shall praise thee, as I do this day, the father to the children shall make known thy truth. Galatians 4.21 Tell me, those who are desiring to be subject to law, do you not hear the law? The Codex Beze ends this verse instead, have you not read the law? This question is posed to all those among the Galatians who had been convinced by the Judaizers. As we have pointed out several times here already, even according to the law, a man cannot be justified by the law. It is good to keep the law, even as Paul himself consistently recommends in his epistles. And as Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But since all men sin, justification is granted to men only by the mercy of God. Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3 that for those nations which are sprung from the anointed seed of Abraham, justification is granted freely as a matter of Yahweh God's promises to Abraham. So speaking of the inheritance, Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, For if from law the inheritance is no longer from promise, 
but to Abraham, through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. We are not subject to the law to perform rituals and ceremonies for our justification. But we should keep the commandments of the law in the spirit of God. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of the servant woman and one of the free. Yet indeed, he of the servant woman was born in accordance with the flesh, but he of the free by a promise. That promise Paul explains in Romans chapter 9. Here Paul is making another analogy. And he is not literally talking about either Edomites or Ishmaelites. In fact, when he prayed in Romans chapter 9 for those Israelites in Judea who had not yet come to the faith in Christ, he only prayed for the brethren whom he had specified as his kinsmen in regards to the flesh. In that chapter, he explained that they were not all Israel who were of Israel. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau, describing the Edomites as vessels of destruction, as many of the Judeans were indeed Edomites, and Paul certainly had no care for them. Therefore, we cannot ever imagine that he means to describe actual Edomites or actual Ishmaelites here. For as he explained in chapter 3 of this epistle, they have already been excluded from the promises to Abraham in Genesis. And the word of Yahweh God cannot be changed. Rather, Paul's analogy here is to compare these Israelites who were still clinging to the works of the law for justification to those Israelites who were already relying upon Christ for their justification. And he says in verse 24, such things are being allegorized. For these are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, having resulted in bondage, which is Hagar. So Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for he for she is enslaved with her children. In his analogy, Paul is using Hagar allegorically because she was a bondwoman as a type for those Israelites who sought to remain bound to the rituals of the law found in the Old Covenant. He then contrasts the children of Israel who have accepted Christ and do not rely on the rituals of the law where he says, but the Jerusalem above, contrasting the present Jerusalem in Judea, and equating that with the blonde woman, the blonde woman Hagar, he contrasts the Jerusalem above and says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is our mother. Paul is not comparing Hagar to Sarah, but rather he is only using Hagar as a representative of bondage. And the children of bondage in the rituals of the law 
shall not be accepted by Yahweh their God because they had rejected Yahshua Christ. He is making this allegory for the benefit of the Galatians, explaining why it is that they should not revert to relying upon the works of the law. Paul is comparing these Israelites remaining in bondage to the rituals to the Jerusalem which is above, which is the true seat of Yahweh's government, and which is ostensibly the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, as it is later described in Revelation chapter 21. There it is written, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, a bride adorned for her husband in Paul's time. This Jerusalem is still above. It's not descended yet. The revelation was given to John approximately 40 years after Paul had written this epistle. Verse 27, For it is written, Be gladdened, barren who is not bearing. Break forth and shout, she who is not travailing, because many more are the children of the desolate than of she who has the husband. Here Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54. And reading that passage in Isaiah, we find that here Paul is actually contrasting the ancient remnant in Judea who were kept bound to the law to those of the Assyrian deportations and the other dispersions of Israel who were cut loose from the bondage of the works of the law, but nevertheless had the promise of salvation in Christ on account of the promises which had been made to the fathers. To understand this, we must read the entire passage which Paul is citing here. From Isaiah chapter 54, Sing, O barren, that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness 
will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. That moment for the Galatians was 800 years until the time in which they received the promise of Christ. I had interpreted this passage quite differently in the presentation of Galatians done with with another supposedly Christian identity pastor several years ago, and I had interpreted it incorrectly. Perhaps I had other motives at the time, but I nevertheless must admit the mistake and correct myself. Reading the passage in the context of both Paul's statements here and in its original source, it has nothing to do with those who have already been excluded from the covenants and the promises of God in Christ. Rather, it has everything to do with the fact that while Israel had forsaken Yahweh, and while Israel was put off by Yahweh, the promises to Abraham would be kept in spite of the disobedience of Israel. Isaiah had lived to the time of the reign of Hezekiah, and he both prophesied and witnessed the deportations of Israel and the destruction of Samaria by the Assyrians. It is even possible that he lived to see the later deportations of most of Judah by Sennacherib and the failed siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, which took place around 700 B.C., in regard to which he had also prophesied in his famous As Birds Flying oracle in Isaiah chapter 31. The chapters of Isaiah leading up to Isaiah chapter 54 contain several messianic prophecies, most notably that of Isaiah chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. Then here in Isaiah chapter 54, we see the words, For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. And enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on a right hand and on a left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations. In other words, they will stretch out from their place of captivity, traveling east and west. But this is not addressed to the married wife. Rather, it is addressed to, O barren, thou that did not bear. In this case, the desolate are those kingdoms and cities of Israel which had been destroyed and their people taken into captivity by the Assyrians. While the married wife would be the remnant of Judah and the other tribes, Levi, Benjamin, some of them, some of them from the other ten tribes or dying, which remained in Jerusalem. The married wife is the remnant, 
it's not the tribe of Judah. Most of the tribe of Judah is off in captivity with Israel. That's why Jeremiah referred to the two families which Yahweh had put away. The people in Jerusalem continued to call themselves Judah, but they were only a tiny part of Judah. Judah. And those who returned from Babylon were only a fraction of those left behind by the Assyrians. By quoting this passage in Isaiah, Paul is telling these Galatians exactly how the promises to Abraham were ultimately fulfilled. While there were already some nations in Europe, which were at least in large part descended from the Israelites, such as the Romans and the Illyrians, who had other Adamic peoples, peoples among them, and the Dorian Greeks, and those of the West, those nations of the West which descended from the early Phoenicians, who were Israelites in Ireland, Britain, the coasts of Gaul, and elsewhere, the final fulfillment of the promise to Abraham would be realized in the Germanic and related nations which had come from the Israelites taken into Assyrian captivity, among whom were these Galatians that Paul is addressing here. These are the people Yahweh God had forsaken, described in Isaiah 54, and these are the people whom he had promised to gather, a gathering which begins in Christ. Then Paul assures these Galatians of his intent in quoting, in quoting this passage by saying, and we, brethren, and some manuscripts have you, and you, brethren, down through Isaac, are children of promise. Now the King James Version has here, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And nearly every other modern translation follows, having as Isaac, or like Isaac, with many of them adding the word was, as the King James does which does not appear in any manuscript of the Greek, even though the King James Version does not mark it as having been added, as it should have been placed in italics. In the manner in which this reads, the mainstream commentators wrongly imagine Isaac to be a mere type, an example, rather than correctly imagining the Galatians to be part of the literal fulfillment of the promise, which is pretty explicit throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Amos. The promise that Abraham might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Once again, the mainstream commentators isolate this verse from the balance of what Paul has said here, and then they pervert its intended meaning. The Greek preposition translated as like or as here, by nearly every mainstream translation, in fact, probably by every 
mainstream translation, is kato. A word which the King James Version often translates as after, or in the manner of, or as according to. But a preposition most literally means down from, or down through. The literal meaning of the preposition kata means down. There are other and indisputable ways to say like or as in Greek, and in even less letters than the usual word for like or as is hos. It's an even smaller word than kata. Hos is translated as like or as hundreds of times in Scripture. But kata is not merely a synonym for hos. It's not really a synonym at all. In some contexts, for instance in Hebrews 4.15, kata can be interpreted to mean in like manner, which is really according to the manner. However, if the Galatians are children of the promise in like manner with Isaac, then they too must have come from the loins of Abraham like Isaac did. Therefore, because the children of the promise also must be children of Abraham's anointed seed, and not even Abraham was allowed to make a substitute. We chose the most literal meaning of the word kata when we translated this verse, down through Isaac, or down from Isaac, we may have written. The Galatians certainly came into the world down through Isaac, or they would not have been subject to the law. They would not have been heirs of the promise. They would not have been sons of the promise. In Isaiah chapter 66, we see a prophecy which foretells where the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivity were going to be sent by Yahweh their God, where he said in verse 19, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them, meaning those who escaped from the Assyrian deportations, those who survived the Assyrian deportations. I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles of far off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The Galatians, who were unknown to the Greeks by that name before the 4th century B.C., and their ancestors, the Scythians and the Cimmerians, who were unknown to the Greeks before the late 7th century B.C., 
were indeed of the Bit Qumri, the descendants of the children of Israel deported by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC. Here, they were dwelling both adjacent to and within the lands of Lud, which is ancient Lydia, and Javan, which is ancient Ionia, on the coast of Anatolia, and the Tibani, or Tubal, the people, or one of the peoples, who lived on the coast of the Black Sea in Anatolia in ancient times. Therefore, the Galatians, who before the dispersions of the children of Israel were unknown, who descended from the children of Israel, and who were dwelling exactly where Isaiah said they would dwell in Isaiah 66, 19, were a small part of the dispersions of Israel fulfilling a portion of Isaiah's prophecy. Other tribes of their Germanic brethren fulfilled the rest of the prophecy. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh had persecuted him according to the spirit, so also now. And Paul continues his analogy using Hagar as a symbol of bondage in the works of the law, and now in the person of Ishmael, where he cites Genesis chapter 21, which says describing the time after the birth of Isaac. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. And of course, Ishmael would be about 14 or 15 years old at this time. And Paul continues his analogy and says, But what does the writing say? Cast out the servant woman and her son. For by no means shall the son of the servant woman inherit along with the son of the free. And here Paul quotes directly from Genesis 21.10, which is Sarah's response to the mocking of Ishmael in an appeal to Abraham which Yahweh God had then commanded Abraham to abide in, informing him that in Isaac shall your seed be called. And in spite of the fact that this was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son, Ishmael and Hagar were indeed cast out. So with this, Paul informs us that those Judeans who would cling to bondage under the rituals and ceremonial ordinances of the law were to also be cast out of the community of the children of Yahweh in Christ. He then concludes, Well, brethren, we are not children of a servant woman, but of the free. And the Galatians, in the same manner as the Israelite Judeans, were indeed a portion of the children of the promise and among the descendants of Isaac through his son Jacob. The Edomite Judeans, who call themselves Jews today, are another story entirely.
these two chapters of Paul's epistle to the Galatians are a full exhibition of the truth of covenant theology, and they fully elucidate the manifest truth of the promises of Yahweh made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. However, any attempt to replace the seed of Abraham with a motley and diverse collection of so-called Gentiles is an attempt to deny Yahweh, the God of Israel, of his forespoken truth. Making that attempt, men shall certainly fail, and we as Christians ought to obey God rather than men. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next week with Galatians chapter 5. Tomorrow, with the Protocols of Satan, part 2.